0: Hi, this is Andrea. And this is Fiorenza. Welcome to the Belonging Project podcast.
1: We are so excited to have you here with us. The purpose of this podcast is to bring voices together to talk about belonging. Through inspiring real-life conversations with our guests, we learn about how belonging can show up in so many different ways, what it feels like to belong, and the impact of truly belonging.
0: In each episode, we will offer you inspirational and practical strategies to find your true voice in your life, in society, and as a
1: leader. Let's dive in. And our guest today is Sydney Coleman. Sydney began her diversity and inclusion advocacy many years ago when she studied social identity, inequality, and intergroup relations at Occidental College. She designed and conducted research on the relationship between internalized racism and colorism with undergraduate women of color. Sydney's passion for social justice activism led to creating and driving more diverse and inclusive programming and policies in tech startups. Most recently, she has taken on leadership roles in both corporate employee resource groups and diversity steering committees. Sydney has also designed employee inclusion surveys and held intergroup dialogues on social justice issues and microaggressions in the workplace. Sydney works on product inclusion programs at Google. And Sydney is incredibly passionate about making the workplace and tech in particular more accessible, inclusive and equitable for underrepresented populations. Dear Sydney, thank you for being our guest today. We are thrilled to have you here. Sharing your story and experience toward belonging
2: with us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here and have this conversation. And to start, we would love to know
1: more about you, your your journey, your your story. Um, and maybe as a starting point, what drove you to your field of study and work?
2: Yeah, thank you. So, it's a great question. I think. I was always really interested in how people think and how experience informs kind of how we approach the world. Um, So from a young age, I was really interested in psychology and ended up pursuing that course of study in college. And I think that was sort of what set me on the path of thinking about social justice issues with sort of this academic lens really at first um, and understanding kind of how oppression and and inequality and um, all of these systems work to maintain like existing power structures and privilege um, and it really came for me from an academic lens of really being curious about social inequality, but through the perspective of social psychology and understanding group dynamics and how, um, how things come to be in in group norms. And, um, yeah, that's, it's not a super sexy story because it's, it's just a very like intellectually curious start. Um, it's not that I had like one experience and then decided to pursue this, but I think examining power and privilege has always been really important to me. And I have cared a lot. And it was embedded in me growing up um, to care about justice. And that kind of took a number of turns and then landed me in this work. But it was a value and then kind of a curiosity. Thank you. I
0: for
2: sharing. That. Yes, I I
0: when especially here in the US, i love like talking with you and more of your story because one thing that we noticed especially here in u.s um, and last year now with uh, so many events that happened uh, that most of people let's say that we see in diversity positions like uh, in executive positions talking about diversity are people of color or people in any diversity things so I'm curious how is this for you that uh, in being not a person of color I don't know exactly your background but also for me um, I didn't share like I'm a originally from Brazil, Uh, so I consider Latina here in US. I lived in Italy and now in US, but because how I look like, people look me as a white person, but actually I can be in other boxes if you would. So how do you see this for you in being a white person and advocate for people of color as well?
2: Yeah, it's a great question Um, and thank you for sharing. I think that race and ethnicity and skin tone and all of these dynamics are kind of intersecting. And so what you're talking about with being Uh, identifying as a woman of color but then also being white passing and then that varying based on like context um maybe like the, the folks that you're with or the setting and kind of what level of understanding there is in terms of your identities um is super valid and super common right like everyone has their identities that are both seen and unseen so I think for me stepping into this work was something that I considered doing for a while. And then I was hesitant about it, honestly, because I was unsure if I should sort of take up space in the conversation and take potentially like a position away from someone who has more lived experience as a person mm-hmm. of color in, in the world and can apply that. And I really considered and like went back and forth on this for a while and like for several years actually Mm um and ultimately I got encouragement from folks who identify as people of color and are in social justice activism or in DEI and they were like you need to do this like why are you you can't just like tiptoe around it if this is something that you're passionate about and you want to impact systemic change then you need to step into the work and stop like doing this little dance because I remember a conversation I had with one of my mentors at one point who's a woman of color and I was I can't go to that event because I'm I don't identify and I, I don't know if allies are allowed at that event and she was like just go like you're overthinking all of this and you just need to start showing up and then I think, I don't know, something went off, like a light bulb went off in that conversation, and I just started to step into the work, and it's kind of just kept going ever since, but I do think it's really important, your question, and it's important to address whiteness, and I think that we often, as a society, we can kind of treat it as the default, or it's um, unspoken, and so I think when I'm having conversations or presenting on issues of racial equity, it's important to name my whiteness and and identify like, how can I use my privilege to have systemic change? Like what conversations am I having access to that people of color are not having access to Mm -hmm. potentially? Mm Yeah, yeah, I love that, thank you. Uh,
0: because I don't know if you are familiar, but in Brazil, for example, the, there is a historic wise is very similar with the US, with the colonies and slaves and everything, but uh, there is a lot of uh, social issues in Brazil. But I would say that we don't see us as so separate as the Americans see. I was shocked when I came here, I've been here for nine years, that for the first time I had to check the box and saying which race I am. And until now, I've been here for nine years. Sometimes I don't answer because I don't want to put myself in boxes in yeah, I understand the focus of the question, but I'm still thinking that
2: uh, it's about putting people in boxes. Yeah, totally. And our identities oftentimes cannot be just a check box, um, exactly. especially when there are things like you mentioned where it's like your internal identity is different than potentially how you're perceived and how you're treated in the world and benefiting from being white passing potentially, but then also feeling discriminated again in certain contexts or facing prejudice. And I think that is a huge difference between the United States and some other places, like you mentioned, Brazil. Um, and I think Brazil is is majority people of color, right? So in that, like, there's so much ethnic diversity and it's truly um, a lot of folks who are like mixed race and all sorts of makeup, whereas for some reason we have this legacy based on white supremacy where everyone is defined in the U.S. and we want to know specifically what you are. I mean, it's one of the most offensive questions, and I hear this from my friends who are racially ambiguous or ethnically ambiguous all the time, where people are, will ask, like, what are you? And it's like, mm. why do you feel entitled to that information? And also, yeah. why does that matter? So I think there's like a larger conversation there. Absolutely. Yes. We are obsessed with labels. I think, I mean, I have mixed feelings about it because I think that whole argument that it's common in, in, in Europe, but it's also common in, in some, some schools of thought in the U S too, where it's like the human race, we're all the human race. And that is sort of posits this like colorblind ideology where everyone is is the same. And the reality is like, we're not treated the same. And there is a legacy of white supremacy that is like very much alive and active today. And so sometimes while I don't like putting people in a box, obviously, and like, this is a fluid thing. And I think it's really important to be um, open-minded about how folks identify, et cetera. Like we need to have that data to understand the discrepancies in, in people's experience. And so oftentimes, like if we don't have folks self-identify, we don't then understand the nuance. And this is coming up, not just for race, but like for non-binary or trans folks. Like if we just have the simple box of like man or woman, and we're not getting more granularity in terms of how people actually identify, then we're missing out on like, a whole slew of data that would indicate discrepancies in how people are treated, both in like the workplace, but it could be anything. It could be like your SATs to get into college, like all of these terrible things that we have to, you know, whatever. Voting, like voter suppression, there are so many things. So I think we kind of need I don't know, maybe this is because I work for Google, but I'm just like obsessed with data. So sometimes we need it.
0: So this is a good also point to to say this, your other passion for tech industry and working on Google. So how this looks like uh, for you in bringing this... uh, that you are combining these two passions so working in the diversity and with the tech industry so tell us a little bit more about uh, your work of google and what is important for you in this tech industry
2: yeah so my background is in all sorts of different things in tech but i joined the tech industry and i think one of the first things i realized was oh my gosh, there's this elephant in the room. Like I thought that it would be a really progressive and forward-thinking industry. And in many ways it is, but when it comes to social justice issues, it's definitely not. And so I um, was a little shocked by that, honestly, mm. coming out of academia. I thought, oh, this is kind of the new innovation is all, everything's happening, Silicon Valley and, um. I realized that some of these conversations about identity and equity were just not being had and so um yeah i did marketing i did data analytics i did all sorts of different kind of peripheral jobs and and it like diversity and inclusion wasn't really a career in tech a few years ago so once that became a career and i started seeing oh there are these like roles popping up. I had already kind of been doing that work kind of as a night shift, um, through employee resource groups and through just having conversations with leaders. Um, but I eventually decided to step into it because I had a negative, I had a really negative experience in the workplace and I was like, okay, whatever, I'm just going to move towards this thing that I'm really passionate about. And so, um, I started in the DEI world focusing on what most people focus on, which is the employee. So how do you hire? How do you retain? How do you have like an equitable workplace and practices like pay equity, promotion processes, representation, thinking about inclusion, like how people are experiencing the workplace. And that was really interesting, um, and I did that for a few years and predominantly in an engineering org so working with a very heavily male group of like 2,500 engineers and then I was thinking more about it and I really like being more aligned with kind of the business and my background in marketing um, drew me into thinking more about products and how we build and design Mm. products and I have this kind of user first consumer first perspective where not that I don't care about employees it's super important to have representation in who's building products and who's marketing these products to have that inclusive perspective but I really care about the experience of people using technology and whether it's helpful to them or in some cases harmful to them and how do we avoid that so I um, I started to get really curious about product inclusion, which is basically how we ideate, design, research, adversarially test and ship products and features that are in the hands of like millions and billions of people. um, And just how can we make them more useful for people of all different walks of life? So regardless of you know, race, gender, religion, where you are in the world, who you love, like all of these dimensions of someone's identity, um, wanting to make sure that those products are actually helping and improving their quality of life. And in moments of crisis too, where you really need your technology to perform. Like if you're in a, a crisis situation where you've just been hurt or assaulted or something has happened or there's a natural disaster like you need your technology to be accessible and useful to you in these moments that really matter and I I don't know maybe I'm like too doomsday but I like thinking about those critical moments um especially for people that are marginalized Yes, and we can also
0: feel your passion to this. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: and I'm
1: I'm thinking about the data that you you mentioned before. Um, I'm curious to know how do you how do you measure, you know, generally speaking, whether a product has become more inclusive, like. How, how does that journey get measured?
2: Yeah, so I can tell you a little bit about how we do it at Google. Um, there's a lot of different approaches, and I think this is such a growing and new area of technology that they're like ethical AI and machine learning and how you train your models. I mean, there's different answers for different technologies, but... The way that we're doing it at Google is we have 12 different dimensions of identity that we're looking at and making sure that the experience is equitable for people across a range of identities. So I always forget some, but I'll name, I'll name them. But basically, it's like race, gender, ethnicity, location or geo, the language that you speak, your body size, criminal history. I mean, all sorts of things, ability and disability, mental illnesses included, like what is your experience and your full range of who you are and intersections of those things? And how can we design products that work and are useful for people who have these lived experiences and are on the margins of society, but also sit at the intersections of some of these identities. So for instance, not just designing for someone who has a disability, Or someone who is a person of color, but how do you design for a person of color with a disability and thinking about those things in mind? And it could be something as simple as, like, how do we design products and technology for people who are Mm left-handed and not assume that everyone is right-handed? Or it could be, like, much more nuanced. And so, um, like, someone who's not just designing for someone who's blind, but what about someone who's blind and hard of hearing or deaf? Um, And thinking about all the overlaps in identity. Um, so basically that's how we're approaching it, is looking at it from an intersectional lens, but also across these dimensions of identity. Thank you wow. for sharing that. It's
1: so, okay. so important. Yes.
0: And uh, it's uh, with so many things in life, how we take for granted, like uh, the life right now, it's something so simple, but uh, yes. Now we need to empathize and see you now different lenses and uh, of also transactions, as you said. Very interesting. So coming a little bit with the topic here about belonging, what is belonging for Sydney? What's it come to your mind when you think about belonging for yourself or the work that you are doing, the people that you care, how do you see belonging
2: for you? Yeah, I think belonging for me has a lot to do with psychological safety. So feeling like you can be your true self and that you're not going to be like penalized or in jeopardy of, I don't know, like sh- being shamed or harmed or losing your job or whatever um, harm. Um, so for me, like feeling that I belong allows me to not put on a specific act or be a specific version of myself, but really just to kind of show up as I am. And, um, it takes away a lot of the like emotional labor of overthinking, um, which I definitely do a lot of. So it's, it's like, how can I just be who I am without having to curate that for a specific context or environment and have that be well-received and also just like having authenticity and being true to who you are and not feeling judged. That's a really big part of belonging for me. Like I don't need other people to be like me, but I need other people to be accepting and empathetic and, um, not kind of enforce their own values or whatever on me i don't want to feel controlled i really don't want to feel controlled
1: (laughs) yeah yeah there's a, a sense of freedom right or being free to be who you are um and like you said without showing the curated version of you
2: Yeah, because I think we all know, I mean, it's hard to, it's like not a tangible thing, but we all know what it's like to feel like you are putting on a bit of a show and whether it's like dating or interviewing or doing something where you feel like you need to be performing rather than just be as you are. And for me, I just like, I kind of hate that song and dance of having to be someone I'm not, um, but I understand it's also a privilege because of some of my identities are just like very accepted or in the dominant group. Um, and for some people, they don't have the psychological safety to just be who they are. So they, they still have to put on a face or they're not out in certain environments or what have you. Um, so I think it's really depends on the person and the environment.
0: And and if you think about in the workplace, I don't know, in your experience at Google or many or even in other companies, what are the factors, what is important to create this belonging, this psychological safety, as you said, in the in organizations or in or could be even in society, but seeing more in the workplace in your experience.
2: Yeah, I think there needs to, and I've experienced this and the lack of it. So I think like there needs to be a a safety where you don't feel like there's judgment or you don't have a fear of consequence, some like sort of retribution or retaliation or some like something happening because you are authentic. So if you say something that there's like a safe space in being true to yourself and um, but that takes time to build. Like I I know that that is difficult, especially in the workplace for people to foster. Um, it's something that just kind of happens over time, but there are certainly ways to do it. I mean, I think an example, like my, my manager recently, someone on my team was not feeling well and she started Um, mentioning like, yeah, this is what's going on. Like my stomach and like going into this, like tangent about why she's not feeling well and what the details of that were. And, um, my, my boss basically like interrupted and was like, you don't need to like, tell me what's going on. Like you can physically not feel well. You can like emotionally not feel well. And like, there needs not to be like a justification. It's just simply saying like, I'm not feeling well is that the end of the conversation and then like she was basically like go take care of yourself whatever but um yeah I think there just needs to be it's in these small things and the repetition of creating that safety that needs to happen and I don't think most managers in companies have it (laughs) so they're not trained on it they don't have it it's a soft skill. And like when we're thinking about inclusive leadership, I don't think we're there at all. We have such a long way to go. And especially because a lot of companies still have the model of like promoting people who are strong individual contributors to them being leaders and managing teams. So it doesn't translate. Like you can be really good at your job and terrible with people. Um, so... I don't know. I, there's a lot to be desired. Yeah, there's a lot, and um, and even in the opposite
0: experience, I love what your manager said to this person. I had my uh, experience like um, my former boss when I used to work in a child that come to, and we were most women, and she was she as a woman would say. You women, you just get a lot of trouble. We also have issues like with kids, all these comments like that today, we know that is unconscious bias or microaggressions and all this kind of stuff. But you don't just don't feel safe to to say what you need to say. So I totally agree with you.
2: Yeah, I think people are becoming a little bit more subtle, but it mm-hmm. still exists because there's more knowledge around like what is or is not okay in terms of like microaggressions but also just like legally like what you can and can't say like you can't during COVID like you can't say something to someone about parenting like that's just like totally inappropriate and also like illegal to like shame someone about having their kids in the home when like we're in a global pandemic and this is the reality for so many people right um whereas like previously that was completely normal to be like yeah you know mommy shaming and women obviously still can take hits in their career when they have children like this stuff is still very um real so I don't know the way that I often um try to talk about it is like flipping the gender roles too when we're talking about parenting and gender specifically like would you say that to me if I was a man or would that, if this was, you know, if this situation was the reverse, how would that go? Like, yeah, I have a specific example of that, but I'll I'll leave it.
0: I
1: I have flashes in my
0: mind.
1: (laughs) For sure. Um, And Sydney, I know you're um, involved with employee resource groups. In your experience, how do employee resource groups help people feel more included or even feel that they belong?
2: Yeah. So I think employee resource groups are great for a number of reasons. It's when you're the other in an organization and there aren't or the only and there aren't a lot of people like you, there's just like an important solace in, in, in solidarity and like bringing people together that are from the same background or have a shared experience. So I think it can be helpful for that just to sort of have this like support network for one thing. When it comes to like influencing policies and practices and products and leadership and all of these things, you really need to have executive support. And a lot of the times I feel like these grassroots efforts are like, oh, they're just like over there talking about diversity issues. but. To make any change, I always tell people like you need an executive sponsor, you need a budget, you need OKRs, you need goals, and you need some visibility and accountability for those goals, or you're not going to be able to influence the organization. Because oftentimes these conversations are happening in silos. And it's sometimes an additional night shift or burden on folks who are underrepresented in the company. So it's like, okay, do your job all day and then do this other thing as well for the ERG because you're the only black woman in the company and we want you to be the token and like the spokesperson for that experience. And it's just really not fair. So I think there needs to be like delineation between like what is someone's actual job and like having DEI professionals who are solely dedicated to this and empowering and supporting ERGs, which is like more grassroots instead of giving people all of this emotional labor. Absolutely.
1: Because it, it, it's not only time consuming, but it, it can be quite energy um, draining as well. And when you, especially when you do that on top of a day job. All right. Um, Andrea, do you have any, any more questions that come no, to I mind? I think we did so
0: many. Like we could continue here forever but uh, I think we can come to the close
1: all right so what we like to do Sydney to close our interviews is to ask um three three questions three short questions and it's really about um responding with the first words that come to mind so the first question is in a few words only belonging for me is belonging for me is
2: feeling safe The best advice that I've received and that I'd like to share is? The best advice that I've received and that I'd like to share is create your own job. (laughs) (laughs) Don't look for it. Love (laughs) it. Yeah. And finally, the world will be a better place if? The world would be a better place if there were more women in leadership. (laughs)
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Thank you so much, thank Sydney. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.
2: Thank you. Thank really you enjoyed for, it. Thank you.
0: For the work that you are doing, thank you for having the courage to stand up, uh, speak up, uh, and be you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Belonging Project podcast. We hope you enjoy our deep dive into belonging and listening amazing
1: stories from our guests. We'd love you to share about the Belonging Project with your friends and colleagues. And also, we'd be delighted to connect on LinkedIn and share more about our experiences. Thank you again and stay tuned
2: for the next episode.